This is Design School is recorded at the KPLU studios in downtown Seattle. Thanks to KPLU for letting us use their space. And now on with the show. Hey JP, how's it going? One more time. Does that sound good? One more time. A little bit better? It's, it's too deep for me now that it's summer. This is Design School. Thank you, Adriel, for uh, being on This is Design School today. We're really excited to, uh, to have you and talk to you. John had some great things to say about you and your experience when we talked with him last time. Um, and he has a, uh, we asked him to ask you a question to start a conversation off today. Um, so John would like to know, based off of your experience both in grad and undergrad, um, how will those experiences uh, affect your teaching style? He mentioned that... Um, you were thinking about going into education, um, and then what sort of professor, if you end up attaining that, would you want to be? Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for having me here. This yeah. is great. Uh, that's uh, that's a good question because it's going to take about an hour to figure out how to say it. <laughs> All right. It's uh, you. If if there's different categories of of students who arrive at the intersection to decide to go to graduate school. And I think of that as a big part of how graduate school goes. Mm -hmm. And we tell ourselves to be open-minded and we say, okay, let's let go of all that because we don't know what's coming. But subconsciously it's built in that we're going to have expectations and they are either going to be met, um, we're going to be surprised and like the outcomes, or we're going to see that things are very different and we're disappointed and we have to deal with that as we go. So that's not that different from how we first enter our careers. And mm -hmm. those all lead to where we finally go. And with graduate school, for me, um, the idea that I would someday teach started probably about 2007. Mm -hmm. And um, I graduated in 2000 with a degree in industrial design from Western Washington University. Um, it's a school with, um, at the time I didn't know going in, I just knew about their program. I didn't know to apply other places. I had only tried for there. And, um, it was a school that allowed 12 students in a year. So it was, um, very competitive at the front end. And from there, um, you really had to know what you wanted to do, um, it, it, as far as do you really want to be a designer or not? And they push for you to become excellent in the profession. So that that's really where you take that with you, that experience. And if you're going to get a graduate degree in the same exact field, the same name, mm -hmm. you're obviously going to see two separate design school uh, mentalities. You're going to see two separate sets of faculty. You're going to have... Um, all of those experiences you had in undergrad, which uh, most people were young when they did that, and there's these uh, rose-colored glasses that we see everything through. And it's also in the past, so we look back on it fondly. And so the first thing you do is compare what that your program was like for you, and to you compare that to what you have now around you that you help teach in when you do TA work, and you get to sort of look over the teller counter and see what how the things work in the background of, of everything. You see a perspective that's not a student's perspective. You see how faculty interact. You see all of the other things that that happen to make a program work. 
you see the things that interfere with having it work the best it could. And that's all because it's still run by human beings and it's still um, expensive to do it. So there's never enough money. You could always throw more money at it. There's uh, a lot of things that make a program great that are not just student-teacher relationships. That really, having the graduate school experience completely changed how I felt about what it would be like to teach eventually. Going in, I thought, this is great. I loved my professors. I loved being a student. How could this not be amazing? And so then once I got to see what it was all like um, and learn more about how it works, that's the big one. Um, I looked at it a lot differently. I I saw, um, I would say that at first the... The way I looked at it was, okay, this is one program, but there's a lot of programs. And then I started to see things and go, oh, this is what everybody has to deal with. And then finally uh, concluded, well, where do I fit to start out in this? Would I be a tenure track uh, professor right out of school? Um, Would I try for an adjunct position? Would I continue my professional practice? All those things are still sort of in flux right now and how I would teach depends greatly on what that place would be like because they now I know they're all very very different so you know I looked at what I arrived with was things I couldn't control I arrived with the other students that were accepted and they all had their you could say baggage but it's not bad baggage I mean bringing a change of clothes when you move to Seattle is not a bad idea but a lot of it was that you started to see how people arrived at their conclusion to go to graduate school. You, you would have people that had an undergrad degree in sociology or a different field and find themselves gravitating towards a role of design that they just felt underqualified for. Um, it worked at the company they were part of so they could build experience doing design work with their sociology degree and then if they wanted to move laterally, they couldn't do that same work because there's nothing on their resume that shows that they have those credentials. So they'd go to graduate school to sort of bone up on design theory that's taught at undergrad level, fill in those gaps in their um, their skill set maybe, and focus on something that, that was just too far of a stretch to self-teach and then have the paperwork that goes with that that says master's in design, master's in visual communication, and be able to move laterally and then up in as a designer. Um, I saw that. I saw students who had reached sort of a crisis with their profession, that the thing that they thought they would love to do has run its course. It's become more of a strain than they would hoped for. And so graduate school was a place to stop, reset, um, reevaluate what they're good at, feel very challenged in a different way, take on challenges that aren't available in the professional world, a lot of the altruism and design for good things. Where do you do that and actually make a living and pay for your home? Or it, It's not easy. But in graduate school, you can spend two years focused on that and really start something that has a lot of momentum. So, um, And then the other category is people who look at design like I do, which is if you want to move up in design, it's merit-based, it's experience-based, and it's the type of experience that's really what limits where you go, not your degree. Um, a lot of CEOs and creative directors 
only hold a, a bachelor's degree. So it's sort of a more merit-based field. But when you do see a job position where they ask for a master's, chances are that's for a full-time faculty position at a major university teaching design. So that's what I wanted to do. This made design school for me a ticket booth. It was like, hey, I got to get through this to be qualified for that. Um, and, And that's really where that's the category I fit in. We all, the five of us that went through and were accepted into the 2011 through 2013 class at UW, we, um, we all came from some version of that. Along with the, the downturn in the economy, you saw a few vocational refugees. You saw some people who said, it's going to be blank on my resume anyways for two years. I might as well continue to practice in this way. And uh, experience something very different that does not look like uh, I was unemployed. It makes somebody look like they were continuing to gain abilities and skills from, I would say, the end of 2008 on. There's people who were really qualified for their job that the job was taken away, the job's gone. And what were they supposed to do? So some of those guys, um, I'm sure, have come through in the years prior, but we were starting to see that clean up a bit. And we had a class of people who really had a lot of purpose, who really wanted to get the most out of what graduate school could be. That's what made it great for my time there. So can you talk us through the steps of grad school to where you are now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it really goes back to why did I want to teach? Um, and my work is is a, a very outer orbit of industrial design being that the work the product is is still a product but um, it's at a scale that's very different because it, it could be architecture it could be interior design it could be graphic art um, a lot of what I start to do with my projects is is just think about how to make a singular vision that's communicated, in person, like we are here, or by paper, what's printed on paper, whether it's sketches, renderings, drawings, um, and how else to communicate that singular vision. Ultimately, the design work you're doing has to infiltrate the thinking of everybody who's going to build what you you draw. And so the, the indirect story was that I wanted to be a yacht designer while I right out the gate when I was in undergrad. So um, I, I was teased for that. In fact, there was this, uh, we had to have these little business cards for a senior show and everybody wrote something that was broad enough to attract anyone who would hire them and not have somebody just say, well, then this wouldn't work for us because this person wants specifically to do this thing. And I wrote on there, I want to become a yacht designer. And it's a subject-based obsession that goes back to being a boat mechanic in, in high school. And the continued work through um, undergrad school, I was uh, um, a technical writer and illustrator for a local boat builder. So I got to see, at first you're doing boat repair, you're frustrated with how things are built but you have no say and then you get into boat manufacturing and you see how come they built it a certain way and you learn how that material is used um, and how they blend with all the other materials and the labor forces that build them then you go on and if you get to the level of design you can you can have something to say about how it is built and how it will be repaired 
Um, so all of these were just based on how can I be involved with boats and yachts and and have the work get cleaner and cleaner from the first one where you're knee deep in gear oil and everything else that's vile when you're a high school student. You're glad you're not working at the McDonald's up the street, but you, you know, um, are suffering. It's a hard job. It's a labor intense job. You use your hands and then you move into another field where you get to dress up for work and you're excited that your job is sort of on the edge of white collar and you feel that you're you're growing in a way that is furthering your future. When I got to finally be a designer, um, my first contract was with a shipyard and they wanted me on site. And by being on site with 400 employees, it's really quick that if your design isn't honest, if it can't be built, somebody's gonna come by your desk and slam down a sheet of paper and tell you it can't be built. And there's the beginning of a relationship. And what I learned was that that, that had more to do with how well the boats came out than how talented I was or whether or not I could design right or what design tools I used. It came down to relationships and how can you talk to someone and build a rapport and install that that uh, singular vision of the design for the boat and at the same time empower them to educate me on how this stuff works. Because where are you going to learn that? Um, design school is over before it starts and you really do that on the job. And a lot of what I realized was that's the part I like the most. And uh, and the actual yachts being built is, is secondary to that. It's just a way to get to do the thing I like more. So getting on to design school um, it, at a graduate level meant, uh, hey, I could maybe do this part, this interface that I like so much of communication. Maybe I can do that for the job. And so, um, you know, it comes back to how, how can how can I arrive at design school and have this professional career that's ongoing and sort of bring it down to a simmer and have it stay active and get through design school and then begin to add uh, the, the teaching experience from start one. You know, I'm 39. If I teach, it'll be that I'm brand new at something, which is a good feeling. It's a thrill. It's a challenge. And at the same time, um, I'm trying to base it on a decision I made years ago and all the way to the first decision because it's all the sum of all those hungers. Mm -hmm. I, I like the way that you're thinking about that uh, mentorship or that, that connection of, um, of how you build and how you design being a translation to the way that you will perhaps be teaching, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is, is, a, is a good relationship to have as, mm -hmm. a, as a faculty member. Well, I, I hope so, because I'm kind of stuck that way. Um, yeah, there's some of the things that I learned while in graduate school that I had no idea about was that you can work at a research one university and be a, an award-winning professor and have um, all of the accolades that the faculty want in their professors that they hired and have very little of your time actually spent speaking out loud in words in a room with other students and still be completely really valuable to the university. Um, Cause at Western, it's not that way. There's very few post bachelor programs there there are some they are prestigious they are great but um, not nearly like the University of Washington so it's it's a 
it's a group of people who have gotten together to educate undergrads with very few TAs in between. And they avoid that d diploma mill mentality that um, really the work that professors are there to do is to focus on what graduate students are doing and for them and with them. And the graduate students are there to teach the students, the, the undergrad students. So you have um, 30 some thousand undergrads, 6,000 some graduate students, and, and a host of professors who I think in some cases have very little time actually lecturing. And um, that I was surprised because it, completely different at, at Western, that the professors are the ones who teach. And um, that, that feels very different um, when it's office hours time. Uh, and, and for me, I will keep the style that I was a recipient of at Western, where you, if you're going to do this job, you're successful at it because it's there for you to teach. Um, the position is held for you to do the teaching. And that's, that's fair for me because a lot of what my research is, is based on how can we teach better? Or how can we be teaching in a way that betters the field in the right relationship with the field? Because the field is always saying, this is what we need from you. We need your students to be capable of this and be fluent at that and be um, a, you know, a power user with this software and that. Um, it, it, that. That pushback from industry is something that, that in the design field we should keep an eye on. Some would say that we're going to school to become a better citizen, and that might be true, but most people who pick design the design major are interested in working as a designer. And if that's the case, then we better be interested in preparing them for working as a designer. And so there's now that relationship that's ongoing. And then sometimes the design school is the one that says, hey, look what our kids can do and helps push design to do something unique and shows the field how uptight and practical they're being and what is possible, what could be done if we just let go a little bit more. So that sounds like a fun dynamic. And then applying it to working with students day in, day out, that that's sort of still the romantic dream of what I hope uh, being a professor will be. Um, it's interesting hearing your story about um, how you started out as a boat mechanic and that kind of led into you wanting to be um, a yacht designer. Um, and then in your time at UW in your graduate program, it seemed like your thesis focused a lot on craft mm -hmm. and handcrafting things. Um, and John had also mentioned that you felt that that was something that had kind of gotten lost in design education. I was just interested if you could talk about, you know, how, like how and what do you what do you feel exactly was lost um, in education, and then how are you trying to regain that through your thesis? Hmm. Hmm. Well, uh, we do have iPads, and they hmm. are screens, and we yeah. do touch them. But besides that, a lot of what designers do is just a screen activity, and I say just a screen in a way that I don't mean to sound condescending because um, being being excellent in any area of design, um, I'm gonna say area instead of division because mm -hmm. I think the word division really happens. We divide our students up and uh, divisions of design to me 
is missing the chance to look at them as separate hierarchies that we can rise to and complete. A graphic designer who's good, I believe, has the basic uh, composition skills to take on what it would take to do something right in three dimensions in the sense that their initial two-dimensional layout either is successful or it fails. And if it does fail, we have work to do still in 2D before we even get to 3D. So um, in a lot of what I do when I draw a yacht, I'll start with, does this have the right line weight? Does this have the right amount of positive and negative space? Does this basic composition things, where's the eye movement? Mm-hmm. Where will the drop shadows be? And it's it's done in 2D as a profile. And from there, it's time to refine and go into three dimensions and work with materials and do the stuff that industrial designers should always be proud of doing. So. We begin with a step that makes us sort of uh, temporary graphic artists. And then we move into that third dimension, which is the elusive one, which can really make a mess of things, which is exciting. But when we're in that space, um, now we're focused on an object if it's now about the third dimension. But what we're learning and have applied already is that that object can't be the center of all of our focus because we're still connecting not people to that object like like ergonomics but we're really trying to connect people to people using the object as the medium mm-hmm. so that is very different than look at how beautiful this object is that's saying we uh like if i designed a a, a a stool for like a bar stool we would say that's a bar stool but uh an advanced way of looking at it in terms of design is that's a space for activity it might be that it's seating activity, or it might be that you pick up the bar stool and pretend it's a four-barrel laser, and like like your kid will do. Um, it's a Star Wars reference, the Millennium Falcon. So there's that's the same object, but a very different activity. And designing to meet the needs of those activities is really what we're trying to do. Now that's interaction design. So that's not a division. That flows neatly into what we do. And what I would say interaction design is, is good industrial design because you considered that user, you considered the other people that are connected to that activity. Now, good interaction design can be an object or it can be the best web interface you've ever used or the best sat navigation you've ever used or the best ATM you've ever used. But if you look at all like an ATM, there's industrial design, graphic design and interaction design all happening in one object. Now, why does it have to be handed over to another profession, a division of a profession to get that work done? So it's sort of, I look at all of those as design and try to my best to break down that, that it's not that way, uh, that, that it's one or the other, that it's binarily exclusive. Um, so that applies to all, um, the idea that craft is important that applies to any of those fields of design mm-hmm. that I'm talking about, not just industrial design. And the problem is, is if someone thinks of it, oh, you're an industrial designer, oh, you want to make furniture, that's a romantic idea, and you really like sanding a lot to make the surface smooth. Well, that's not a thesis. The thesis is that learning by making, by having to take the steps to make the thing I designed, there's things I learn about the design, not the thing, from having to make it. Um, and people who've worked with uh, a printmaking process that may be very old will say that 
kerning is very different if it's done with blocks. It's very different when you can just tab over a, a certain amount on a on a drop down menu. So that goes with that. That's something that happens to us when we engage the other senses besides sight that changes how we learn and take in information during the design learning spiral. As we design, we're educating ourselves. There's, I now know how to do that. Yes, I can do that. I, yes, I can bid on that. And as we, as we design, we're building up that experience. But at the same time, that education comes back in and says, no, you can do it better now because you're at a higher plane of knowledge. So I'll go to design something and I draw a piece of furniture and another accompanying piece of furniture, and then I start to build. And as soon as that happens, the drawing now becomes abstract, the object becomes more concrete, and I have to let go of my initial plans to do my best work because my senses are telling me your radius is too tight, you can't bend that veneer that far. But the aesthetics of the original drawing look nice with that radius. So it's not a failure in how it appears. It's a failure in how it can be built. Mm -hmm. So then as a designer, what do we do at that moment where do we force it and and do the hardest thing ever and get rid of the BlackBerry and have the whole thing be one screen? Because it's harder to build that. Well, if it's worth it and we see have foresight, yes, the whole screen is the whole thing, that's that's better, right? We, we've all agreed that it is because the screen is now big. So that happens with these wood radiuses I'm trying to make in graduate school, and it's the, it can all fail. The furniture can break apart into pieces, but I'll still have succeeded in showing how I learned from having to build it. And industrial design students specifically have no excuse for not being uh, entrenched in materials and understanding how materials behave. Um, if you build a new home, uh, and in, in let's say in Ballard where I live, a new home went up on our street last year. It's a 2014 home. And it's our home's a 1909. And uh, they both have two by fours. They both have two by sixes. They're still made out of dug fur. Um, they look completely different. But materials that we reach for, that we can use to do our jobs are, sort of limited to the periodical table of elements, right? We're still limited to what we can reach for uh, to use to, to solve problems or make new problems. And so as industrial designers, those things we draw will always be made of something. And so we best be experts at what those materials are. In graduate school, for me, was a chance to prove that my design skills um, could be improved by having to make what I draw instead of just draw and hand it off to a journeyman craftsman who can make it for me, um, I had to do it and I had to struggle and I had to fail and I had to uh, be sore, physically sore. I had to learn that that smell is the table saw not being used right because I'm burning the wood because I'm going too slow. Um, or that, that it sounds like that blade's about to break because of the bearing noise. There's things that come into play in a shop environment that really uh, are makes that shop a studio where we try new things, try new ideas. And there's also teamwork too. If you're in a shop and you're trying to do something right, people treat you different than if you're sketching next to someone else who's sketching. There's just a sort of a built-in don't copy my work thing. But if you're in a shop, you, you can get feedback right away 
and it's more we're disarmed because we're all trying to do something physical to get it done it just seems like an environment that really finds cohesion with students and collaborating and teamwork so there's all these things that happen when we accept that the studio is the shop when we accept that for industrial design especially that space is where we can do some of our best learning not our best making and that the lecture hall maybe that's uh, for something else and and it is it's clean for one um, we can use a whiteboard and theorize and we can cover history and we can review and critique but the the lecturing that happens in the wood shops usually the stuff you remember take away with you so um, that that's really what my thesis was about was how can we um, benefit from having a program that emphasizes all of that handmade stuff now there's liability involved there's spinning carbide blades there's uh, people getting injured there's um, people wasting money because they don't know how to make something so they bought walnut and then they ruined it um, trying to make a project or um, just how relying how much does a student rely on uh, using 3d software to have something cut out CNC to then say look my project's done I made this um, is that different from being told you can't use CNC and in a lot of cases, they learn different things from both of those. They're both valuable, but it's it's there's pressure to have less shop and more um, studio. And we can look at why the shops have dried up at big schools, um, at high schools. There's less vocational training on site. There's a lot of skill centers that students are bussed off to if they if that's their path. There's a lot of history in the 90s of wood shops closing at schools, metal shops closing at schools, auto shops. We, we wanted to tell ourselves that to be happy in life, we need a job that requires a four-year degree and that that work will be clean work. And there's a myth that my, Matthew Crawford talks about where if we're getting dirty, that there's this idea that if we're dirty doing our job, then we're stupid. And that if we're clean, we're smart. And um, I, I hate that. I think that is so far from the truth because nothing looks more stupid than a, someone who's always used to being clean trying to do something that gets them dirty. They'll walk in the shop dressed differently than they even should be and have to be turned around and say, no open shoes, no open-toed shoes, you know, get rid of that necktie. Everything about their ensemble has to change and accept that this bit of learning is going to be gritty and different and that there's going to be a mess to clean up afterwards. And I think that's really uh, coming back around with his maker movement stuff. Um, people have realized that that guy who's a plumber four days a week earns a really great salary and might actually enjoy his life more. Because what's it all for if we don't really like it more? And people are asking that question on the other side of bachelor degree work. What about us that we've gone on and got a master's? I mean, is it worth it? Is is all of this for something? That Those kind of questions are sort of whispering in the background of my thesis, saying, well, if it is, to, then to me, we put back this value that was a requirement at some point, and we accept that it's not just being arcane, but it's as valuable as sketching. We'll never get rid of sketching. If we do, I will do something else. But the, the ability to sit in front of somebody at a, at a, in a conference room setting and sketch out their ideas, you're still going to do that manually. Um, you might use a Wacom 
which would be kind of bizarre. But for the most part, you're going to use paper and pencil. And that's not a old way of doing it. It's a core way of doing something. And that's what I'm trying to say is let's pull back in some of these things we've turned off. We've shut the door to the shop and we've focused on how what our computer prowess is. Well, that's great. That's just a tool. But for learning to do the best work, uh, 15 years of, well, I have 15 years now, but then I had 13 years of yacht design experience and designing custom furniture, truckloads and truckloads of custom joinery, um, joinery systems and wall systems, custom baseboards. I draw a shape and they cut a knife to cut that profile and extrusion. There's no um, limit to what you can do other than the material itself. And then even then, People would do magic. They'd make things that were just amazing to see. And they're meant to be amazing to see. That's their role. And yet, after all those drawings and all that experience, uh, I couldn't draw a, a simple fold-out desk that's wall-mounted and actually build it the way I drew it. I had to start making it to find out what it really should have been from the beginning. And and, uh, that's what you built for your thesis. Well, I did that. I did a I did a bunch of little things as well. I did a adjustable height stool mm-hmm. because of the way we were trying to. I say we because a plug for John Martin, the shop, um, the supervisor at the University of Washington School of Art. He's an asset. He is one of those old guys who knows all that stuff, who it's built into, who can build anything that you bring him as a drawing. And and he really challenged me every day. That mentorship, that was most of that was with uh, um, an amazing staff member at the school that has built into a real friendship, and he's he's a true colleague. He's a great guy, um, but he challenged me, and uh, he had he had he didn't coddle me at all. He made me do this stuff, and it was very uh, difficult at times. When you hit a wall and it's an actual object that you don't know how to do the next step. You have a lot of work to do and you're stuck there in that spot. You can't just start over. You can't just open your last save and and take it from the last time you felt good about it. It's it's really there speaking to you in, in all honesty. So that that I hope that is a chance to to be the starting blocks of, of tenure research, which is how can we um, because there's a shop still there in, in most industrial design projects or uh, programs. There's, most industrial design programs have uh, a halfway decent shop space and making models and finding out what their design should be can happen, it can take place. So how do we emphasize that more? How do we get the students in there? How do they get good at this before they graduate? How do they um, have the right mentorship and supervision and equipment to leave with a multi-sensory experience where the real vocabulary of design comes out and it's not um, all just blue sky chasing windmills type drawings unless it's a really cool actual windmill which (laughs) but i've seen that you've gone back to westerns to uh, lecture Mm -hmm. there um have you seen some of the student projects that have, have been coming out lately? Yeah, yeah. I, I will guest speak uh, at Western. It's sort of a once a year thing right now. And then I was asked this year spontaneously, they had a project, the seniors had a project that involved uh, maritime objects. They were designing uh, research vessels um, or, and research platforms. And 
of course, I had a lot of opinion about what something should be in that environment because that's been my work. But um, they're they're really driven, and there's less of them than other schools, so it's a little easier to have it be down to the driven ones. I mean, you're sort of weeded out. And some people, it's not a matter of what they can do, it's when they can do it. They're not mature enough yet. Or, um, but in some cases, it's literally, look, your work's not good enough to be the one of the 12. And it's a heartbreaking experience because someone will have worked really hard, probably harder than the, the raw talent people, we want to call them. And I will put in parentheses now, I'm not... Uh, a, you know, a weed out mentality. I think everybody can gain the ability to do this work um, just because people think of artists as somebody who, or people that are naturally talented. I don't. I think they have a natural propensity to keep trying after failing in a way that fits into the art world. That said, they get more practice because after failing, they'll try again and keep going. But at some point, that that person has practiced enough to show that they're really good and someone would say, oh, well, you're an artist, so you could use that commercially over here in design or whatever. And that, so I think with enough hard work, anyone can do it. So it's not a weed out regarding what you're born with, but what you're born with can certainly help you try harder for longer, earlier on, all the way up to that point where it's time to apply for a program that only takes 12 students. But the bottom line is the 12 students they get all work hard. All of them have worked really hard to be ready for it. And because of that, there's less chaos. There's not that student that doesn't care. There's none of that. Um, and that's a just a different format than other schools do. Um, a lot of schools do have sort of a review and only allow so many students per year. I mean, the, the graphic art at the university up at Western, I think when I was there, they were accepting 15, but they would have 100 applicants. Now, that's competitive. That's a lot of heartache. That's a lot of tears on the day after. And uh, when I went through, there was 30-some-odd students that that applied, and um, they let the 12 in, and I was very fortunate to be selected but I got there from hard work more than the my background I didn't have the style and the persona that goes with what designers are I didn't have any of that I had no style I had no sense of um, what kind of person a designer is I didn't fit that at all as you guys can tell I'm pretty awkward so that that thing just was like oh I'm not gonna ever fit that category what I knew is I liked boats and that those things are designed and how can I get the skills to do it? So my involvement with Western is uh, deeply rooted in emotion of being there myself at one point. And it dovetails well now into the, the, the how much strong teaching they promote. Um, and it just happens to be where um, uh, I just feel uh, that what I'm talking about or studying, because I've continued to study beyond being in graduate school to have new things to say at these speeches, so to speak, and they fit really well with what they'll be doing. So it's not uh, come in and be a rebel and say stuff that's going to piss off the faculty. It's, It's more that it goes with what they're already installing. So that's 
that's also when you have a professor that's into a lot of green design and how to how to design sustainably and you bring in a guy like me my work and and my mortgage is paid for because i draw things that are incredibly wasteful that as i said in graduate school you know melting ice caps makes more cruising ground for the product that i design and that's it sounds awful because the mentality is always consumer-based. Oh, there's more places we can take our yacht and and pollute, and that's great. Let's go up there now, and let's uh, you know poke the iguana in the eye when we visit the Galapagos Islands and say we've been to the Galapagos Islands. You know, it's sort of a a, a mentality that the outside world looks at the yacht world like. It's not like that. It's 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 a place where. Um, the crisis of how, how some design work should happen is how can I reach a very hard to reach client and their, and meet their needs? And then that will be interesting to Western. Like how, when we talk about demographics, we talk about um, how do you design with empathetic research at the start so that the thing you're going to really focus on will continue to have merit and will matter and stay in the context of need. Um, and is that sustainable? Does that mean you made something out of trash? Might mean that, but it also might mean that your what you're producing is so meaningful and durable that it's the only after you're done, you're done. You don't have to throw it out. Um, so there's a lot of that that goes into the full life cycle talk that that we get into at at Western that that is valuable. And having my perspective of how a boat is built uh, that's so material heavy, it's so literally heavy, so material rich that there's a lot of ground to cover there so that that helps us ask what we should do instead of what we can do um and that that fits well there um as well as you know that that's the school that taught me industrial design western made me into that professional where university of washington being a local guy and growing up here being born here university of washington taught me how to teach that me and a colleague of mine that well, a fellow classmate, he, he and I both had attended schools in undergrad that were part of an engineering program. Well, everything they do celebrates that, they, that it works, that it's functional. So we had that just built into our mind. And to get to a school that's art-based, there's a little bit more praise for the idea. And it's in its raw form that that idea is so out there, untethered to the pragmatism that ruins everything that um and you can you can you can draw that together with saying you know the 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 big successful projects that are american born that apple produces the big news in those products is the idea we 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 praise the idea cuz we want to say sure yeah you can build that and that's no problem there's this other country we can have the pieces made in and it'll all get assembled and work really great and it has to work right when we complain about um, technologies that don't work, um, it, it's it's uh, it's short-lived. They, they're not around much. So when you see these idea things come together, that seems more of an art school thing. You see that people say, can we think of that nugget, that kernel that's so great? And then we'll sort out how to make it some other day. But, but they praise that. So that I didn't have enough of at Western. I never thought that way. I always thought... I already know I can build this, so here's what I want it to look like. And at, at UW, a student might shrug their shoulders and say, I have no idea how to make it, but this idea is great. And and they 
the two are both valuable. The two both fit in the world. But you don't usually get a chance to do that Steve Jobs kind of idea, idea um, generation that connects to so fluidly a praised product that has graphic design, interaction design, product design, all in one. It's, that's rare. So it, in this area, because of Boeing and, and Microsoft and Amazon and Fluke, um, you have a lot of things that are still a, built on, can you work with the other science-based part of this to make it happen? So people who leave Western, they can say that because they'll say, look, I prototyped this. The hinge works. The, the pieces are milled exactly like they should be. This is a working prototype. Um, and they'll get praised for that. But somebody from the University of Washington might get praised for, wow, all the way back, yeah, your prototype's not even a prototype. It's just a model. It's just a white model. But all the way back here, you had this idea, and that's what we want to hire. We want the person who can think of that. And that's the two really great in one. If you can have somebody who has both, that's amazing. But that's why both are valuable. That's why both are, are good for each other and why... Western and UW both are trying to have more of the other person's strength, the other the other school's strength. So, before you were talking about uh, doing design for good mm-hmm. and how sometimes that can be hard to find in the commercial space. Yeah, and then how oftentimes gra- time at graduate school can allow you to step back into those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw you did some work uh, with the public practice studio, mm-hmm. specifically on a project called Pivot. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that, which is a very different type of project than the work you've been talking about before. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it ties in in a similar way when you're talking about like how can you use um, products as a medium to communicate to people mm-hmm. or enable some sort of interaction. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If we accept that that everything is an interaction, that it's a place where a space where activity takes place, we can look at the material that I'm so fascinated with that I when I say material, people picture racks of pipes and wood and things. The material becomes the wishes of people. And you can give endurance to those wishes and those dreams um, by applying good interaction design theory to the research around the two groups you're trying to connect. And that's really hard to do with a subject such as human trafficking because it's so multi-tier in system and the systems that are involved aren't even all apparent. Mm -hmm. It involves state departments, plural. It involves um, security of borders. It involves uh, the demand side and what what affects that. You know, why would somebody feel compelled to have free labor of any kind? Now we focused on sex trafficking, but sex workers is still what we would call work. And it's it's labor unpaid against your will. and that helped us sort of get rid of that stigma in one regard. And then when you say that, it could be for anything. Somebody who's mopping out the back of a, of a very ethnic-based restaurant of your choice. That Well, why are they there? It, does it have to do with that the price on the menu is something we, the consumers, demand? Well, then we're all part of it in mm-hmm. some regard. And to get to start at that level and then work through, okay, let's solve this problem. I mean, there's so many elements to it that are um, very hard to break down into 
um, identifiers that make sense to then put into context to then make sense to um, find ways to move within that space. So you can take something this big and it sounds really naive and almost rude to speak about the subject without having done a ton of research, which we didn't have the time to do. Yeah. So we had to lean on the, the gratitude of the professionals that um, saw what we were doing and thought it was worth um, cooperating with us to do, which is hard to do because you're you're saying, hey, we want to make a difference, and we, we can you hurry up? We got just five minutes here, and we want to make a difference. You know, can I help an old lady across the street? Come on, let's go, lady, let's go. And it's like, okay, great guys, um, if you want to really do this for social good, you're going to have to suffer like we do, which is every day. And we came across um, the the Warren uh, group and their director. Um, was willing to listen on that cold call and say, yeah, you need our help. And, you know, we'll help you focus. And Tad Hirsch, Professor Tad, he was really great at saying, let's not try to solve all of it. Let's try to make a difference. And everybody knows that starfish story of the guy walking on the beach and the tide went way out and it's a hot day and all the starfish are going to bake in the sun and there's thousands of them. And He's throwing him back as he's walking. He's throwing him back into the surf. And somebody says, you know, you don't have, you're not even to make a dent. There's so many here. You're not going to make a difference at all. And he'll look at the starfish, throw it in the sea and say, it makes a difference to that one. Well, that's really what we did here was we just thought, how can we line all this up so it could make a difference to just one person? And uh, it's... Um, it's, it's the kind of work that you couldn't have unless we accepted where we all came from to get to graduate school, like I said earlier. Um, we had the greatest group ever to arrive there, um, and then I was there too. Um, so it was like I, I, I hit the lottery because I got to work with uh, Josh Nelson, Mike Fredo, um, Melanie Wong, and at the time, Carrie Gaynor. Um, she's her her last name might have changed. I'm pretty sure it has. Even though she lives in Seattle, I think she might have actually changed her name. So that's a joke, by the way. But um, everybody was willing to accept that we could do something together better than we could ever do by ourselves. We we accepted that what we were learning in the seminar course on designing for good. Um, and this sort of alternative design and design that's not just commercial based really had some legs for us. We really saw that as, uh, hey, this, this stuff, we're, get, we're having to read all this. We're having to study all this. We're having to lose sleep over it. Let's use it. Let's go somewhere with this. And, um, and one of the students, Mike Fredo, he was making, his thesis was about how to design for good. And his background with Rosa Love um, was already there to to get him to grad school it was sort of a step of um being in that space already at some level automatically um because of how he looks at the world so he gave us all that for free he just showed up and by being mike fredo we all uh sort of leaned in a little more and learned about something that would have not been emphasized in a very independent classroom setting in the studio of 228 if we just decided that those cubicle walls and noise-canceling headphones were the way we were going to do that two-year stint, then we would have missed this. So we gelled. We worked well together. We were very different because there were graphic artists. There was industrial designers and interaction designers all in one space. 
the product involves all of that and um having to to get the graphics right but in the end have a product that's an actual working thing that comes from a factory involves some industrial design skills as well but at the core of it is just a really good idea that we were able to implement to a level that uh we're sort of staggered that it was so it caught on so well um and for us that's where our hearts lie and we all have a job and mine being a yacht designer had nothing to reflect on what I care about. You know, my my priorities are very different than a lot of what yacht designers spend their time doing. It's a very fast paced world uh, that they work in and they keep track of clients that have their own jets. So they're on the move all the time and it's global and you have no home life. So that that isn't interesting to me as much as trying to do the best I can and continue to have my practice designing yachts, but also have a home life, have uh, my daughter know who her father is and have my wife recognize me. Um, <laughs> and, and she's a social worker. And so my wife, so there's, there's constant interaction with the two different users we, we serve. And in design, to be in graduate school, have a, a professor like Tad Hirsch, have it be his turn to lecture, to learn all this heavy theory, to have the right critical mass of the students that wanted to work together, have them want to work on a project like that, and have time for independent studies because we're graduate students, all was the perfect storm. The planets aligned, and it worked really well because of all that. Those are the factors that made it successful. Um, it was a, it was a lot of work, and it was uh, gut wrenching work. You're you're literally learning about how tragic life can be. You're thinking about the very worst thing that can happen to someone, and then saying we can design something that makes that different. Mm-hmm. What was the product you came up with? We we t- we wanted to think of a surreptitious device. We used a, a feminine pad as a way to reach women in 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 trafficking, specifically because it's a moment when they do use a pad where it's a private moment where they are le- left alone, and there's a hidden message inside the packaging, which meant that it had to be packaged by the factory that way, and that hidden message communicates to certain demographics a certain way with with uh, graphic art and language and then the number itself doesn't even look like a phone number it looks like a series of numbers that you would use uh like if you uh you know for like a lottery ticket or something i think it was a fortune cookie right yeah and so that number then can be torn from the bottom and kept and the rest of the message can be uh, it's water soluble so it can be flushed so you leave the the bathroom private moment um completely um you could be searched right then and, and you wouldn't have uh any sign of of that you've received this information that somebody's trying to rescue you instead you would see the right time to call and rescue yourself which sounds like we're asking them to do everything but it really is the safest way and and something we never thought we would come across so um and it's something that's it's picked up it's it's gone to be used by different states um are ordering more of them and in big in big batches and 
putting them in shelters and social work um, hospitals and and uh, um, most likely use where they think that people will come in contact with that. There's little care packs that people give out to those that seem like they need them, that they'll come in contact. A women's shelter, for instance, a, a, a traffic victim may spend the night in one, um, and that would be something they would get. And they go, oh, that's me. That's what I'm dealing with. Um, so anyways, that, that kind of a project is just, when else would I do that besides graduate school? I mean, that's really what's yeah. it's exciting about it. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. Sounds good. Well, thank you very much for uh, being on our show today, Adriel. Yeah. Yeah. It was, well, I loved it. It was great. Cool. Thank you.